2: Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello and welcome to New Books in Economics. My name is Sydney, a podcast or a host on the channel. And today we have Dr. Adrian Basbowers, who is a senior lecturer in international public sector management and the undergraduate coordinator at the School of Business at the University of New South Wales in Canberra, Australia. His research focuses on climate change, development. Global Governance, International Public Sector Management, and International Political Economy. He's the author of two books. The first is The World Bank and Transferring Development, Policy Movement Through Technical Assistance from 2018. And the second one, which we will be talking about today, is called The Global Architecture of Multilateral Development Banks, A System of Debt or Development. Looking over his publications, it becomes clear that Adrian is an expert on the World Bank and Multilateral Development Banks, and so I'm excited to have him on the show to talk about this book. And Adrian definitely did not write this book alone. We also have Dr. Susan Engel here. Um, she is an associate professor in politics and international studies and co-director of the Future of Rights Center. Her research interests focus on the impact of neoliberalism on development and international political economy. Along with this book, she wrote The World Bank and the Post-Washington Consensus in Vietnam and Indonesia, Inheritance of Loss, Susan co-edited the Routledge Handbook of Global Development. Uh, she has published around 30 articles and book chapters on topics including aid and development theory and practices, international financial institutions and their impact on developing countries and sectors from infrastructure to health, the role of emotions and development programs, in particular in sanitation and microfinance projects, and the growth of South-South cooperation. Susan worked in the government, community, and aid sectors before becoming an academic, and she plays an active role in issues of aid and development through advocacy. She volunteers with the Indigo Foundation, a small, not-for-profit organization funding community development projects in developing countries, as the partnership coordination for the India Group. She was a board member from 2002 to 2018. She's also on the research committee of Jubilee Australia. Susan teaches development studies, international studies, international political economy, and model United Nations. She's passionate about teaching and has published a number of pieces on curriculum and pedagogy. So we really brought the A team out for you all today. All right, let's just start with the same question that I start with everyone because I think it's, it's just interesting to get a background is, um why did you write this book sort of what 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 happened that led the two of you to look at each other and go let's write a book um and after deciding that why did you write this book um you can take this sort of wherever you want
1: but
3: yeah (laughs) adrian over to you
1: wonderful not a problem at all um First of all, I'd like to note uh, acknowledgement of country. Uh, Being in Australia as we are, uh, we are on uh, unceded uh, Indigenous land, and I currently exist, and I currently live, uh, on the borders of the Narigo and Ngunnawal peoples, and I would like to pay my respects um, to uh, past, present and future emerging Elders. Um, And I'll pass it across to Susan as well for acknowledgement.
3: Thanks, Adrian. I'm at the University of Wollongong, which is about 60 kilometres south of Sydney, and we're on the land of the Wadi Wadi people of Darawal Nation on unceded Aboriginal land as well.
1: Perfect. Well... um The story of this book, we have an interesting backstory. Uh, So I, back in the day, was a humble undergraduate student at the University of Wollongong, and it just so happens that uh, one of the uh, teachers uh, (laughs) leading me through my undergraduate years, no other than Susan right next to me here, Um, this is is one of these interesting stories. It's something to think about, particularly if, if there's a young researcher listening, um, You never know what opportunities can emerge later on uh, with research, with um, uh, people who led your courses or people you've worked with. It was was an interesting thing. Um, So a few years ago, uh, we both put in papers to a conference in Hong Kong um, without realizing we had both put papers in to a conference in Hong Kong. And it turns out we had almost written the exact same paper on different organizations. And so as you do, you start talking about the different papers you develop an interest in it and we had the idea that maybe we could write a paper just a nice simple paper that looks at these two organizations compare and contrast and then all of a sudden we got eager we got enthusiastic we started to uh being a little bit optimistic about what we could potentially achieve and said well if we could do a paper on two organizations maybe we could write a book about all of them and so we started thinking that in the world today there is a global network a global architecture of multilateral development banks these banks are primarily owned by countries by governments uh, they primarily provide loans to finance economic development economic growth primarily in the global south i say primarily a lot because there's there's nuance in between but primarily uh owned by member countries Um uh, delivering loans primarily for economic growth and economic development in the global south. Now, given that Susan and I have been researching these development banks for a while, uh, we we picked up on a trend that the World Bank is commonly researched. The World Bank is one of the largest development banks operating globally today. It was the first multilateral development bank established in the 1940s. There is uh, libraries dedicated to this organisation. Now, alongside this development bank, alongside the World Bank, there are what I call uh, usual suspects, a handful of multilateral development banks that are also commonly researched. But that gives you about five or six um, organizations all up. And we had picked up trends, and when we started researching these trends, and identified that there are, in fact, 31 of these multilateral development banks operating around the world Uh, we since the publication of the book we actually identified a 32nd so a a second edition of the book needs to incorporate the new one as well Um, but we identified a vast network of development banks that hadn't really received attention Uh, individual organizations had received attention but the vast network had not received attention and definitely had not received attention as a complex system of organizations operating globally interacting with one another and uh, to put in context if there are 32 roughly of these multilateral development banks operating globally uh, I, I did the math <laughs> uh, a few weeks ago because um, this is what i do I, I enjoy looking at the facts and figures and in 2020 uh, in just one year these 32 more or less organizations approved 250 billion dollars uh, for development activities. It's a considerable amount of finance. There's a large number of banks, but so much as hasn't been spoken about at the academic level, it hasn't been analysed, critiqued and researched. And that is why we found that this was an opportunity to pursue, to make sense of this complex network of organisations. Over to you, Susan, if you wanted to... Uh, uh...
3: I, I think from there, we could jump into your question, Sydney, that you had about the history of the MDBs is a nice place to move on to.
2: Yes. Just tell me, start as if our listeners know nothing about sort of exactly sort of what they do you mentioned a little bit that they are sort of owned by countries sort of like what their purpose is how it came to be that this giant network that is operating globally of 31 now 32 banks exists and like kind of just tell us this story like how could it possibly be a mexican invention sort of like how did it get here Right, just take that away
3: excellent so the multilateral development banks they like the first one on record is the world bank or the international bank for reconstruction and development and um i wrote some notes down here about simply explaining to you how they operate so and of course i can't find my notes now but essentially they were set up as a credit cooperative and which means that because they're owned by all the states in the world, they can borrow money fairly cheaply, and they can on lend that money to their member states. And so they're set up as credit cooperatives, but uh, and they can lend. They're set up to lend to both sovereign states and to non-sovereign states. It's part of their original formula to also to be able to lend to the private sector. They can do project lending. Um, they can do sector lending and budget support as well and they can provide loans and guarantees and other kinds of financial instruments and they start off with a credit cooperative arm but a number of the multilateral development banks have also established concessional lending arms where they can provide loans with either cheaper even cheaper interest rates because they get some additional subsidies from their member states so the world bank Starts off, its key arm is the International Bank for Reconstruction and Development. And then in 1961, it adds in a concessional, highly concessional lending arm, the International Development Association. But let's jump back a little bit to the history and how they got about. And the book starts with that story and identifies some of the sort of long-term drivers of the creation of multilateral development banks and multilateral development finance. And it situates that within the long history of state debt and the battle for capital, uh, for states to access capital, especially those on the periphery of the world system. And that's one of the deep structural factors that creates multilateral development finance and banks. And battle is kind of an appropriate term because debt was central to state war making capacity and because ensuring debts were repaid. Um, we've In that process we've seen states and various parties resort to various kinds of violence and tactics including the infamous naval blockade of Venezuela in 1902-03 by Germany, uh, Italy and the UK. And um, some of what can only really be called ugly or odious debts that um, grew up in the early in the late 19th century and early 20th century, and their links to then subsequent financial crises that came out of these poor debts drove thinking about the need to create more stable sources of finance. And that concluded with the growth of internet. And then along with that, we get this growth of international cooperation happening around the world at the same time and expanded faith in human capacity to organise and do this. I think the next big factor we identify in the book is the shift in global hegemony from the US to the UK. Here the book highlights two related shifts in ideas. One came out of US cooperation with Latin America which had been particularly – Latin America had been particularly badly affected by odious debts and debt crises from the mid-19th century. And that led to U.S. loans to the region through the U.S. Export-Import Bank, and these resembled development finance. So what we get here is this first shift around states facilitating finance to other states in a a kind of systematic, organised way rather than as one-off responses to crises, just the the start of it being a more systematic format. And then the next shift I think is ideational. With the Keynesian revolution, shifting thinking around the globe and in the US, ideas about the role of the state in managing the economy and in development grow, and the World Bank's chief architect, a guy, a US uh, citizen by the name of Harry Dexter White, he was really a Keynesian. Um, and the creation of the bank and the International Monetary Fund wouldn't have happened without US hegemony. So for any listeners who don't know much of the history side, what comes out of Bretton Woods, out of the Bretton Woods Conference of 19. 19- 44 was an international monetary fund designed to control countries' exchange rates and promote financial stability as a pathway to promote um, and reignite global trade after the war and the International Bank for Reconstruction and Development, which later just becomes known as the World Bank. And that was really predominantly designed to create loans for reconstruction of Europe but it also had a developmental mandate. And this is where the debate about Mexico comes in that you mentioned. So um, the role of Mexico and the Latin American countries, it's an interesting question. There's no doubt that US-Latin American dialogue was a key factor. Um, So we know from Diaz-Bahia and Del Campo's work that there was a 1939 consultation between the US and Latin America and at that the Latin American foreign ministers asked and they say again for the creation of a new financial institution with a multilateral focus and not a bilateral one like the US XM Bank had, and the Mexican delegation presented a draft for the institution which included a range of um, a, a range of clearinghouse and exchange stabilization functions like the IMF, but. Um, Though, and those had been discussed earlier between the countries. But on this occasion, the Mexican delegation expressly added a clause on having a channel for the investment of capital, which will promote sound economic development in the American republics. Um, and Kirsty Thornton's 2017 work attributed this addition to Eduard, Eduardo Villaseñor, who was then Mexico's Undersecretary of the Ministry of Finance and Public Credit. Um, And she noted that Mexican officials had been discussing long-term development finance for at least 15 years prior to Bretton Woods. And you can go back to Olivia's 1971 book. He pointed to the Mexican role and then more recent research by Eric on which has highlighted this as well. And I think there's more to come out of the historical records of the periods that are actually progressively opening up to researchers. But I'm going to say the other side of that story is that we simply can't forget how hegemonic the US was at this period. Another researcher, um, in a project that will hopefully be published as a book soon. Luke Fletcher has been drawing on newly open US archival sources and he his interpretation really emphasizes again the US role in this period including at those Bretton Woods negotiations. Adrian did you want to add anything there?
1: That was quite comprehensive on the background (laughs) history. Uh, It it takes us up really from the uh, end of the 1800s up to the 1940s when we can say that, uh, we can say arguably, there's there's discussion around this, but arguably the modern development era begins following Bretton Woods. So your story, your history there brings us up to the modern development era. And I would be happy happy to uh, jump into how development has changed over time in the decades since then. Uh, if you like, I'll, 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 of course, awesome. f- finish your thoughts, sorry, Susan. Okay. i cut you off for a moment.
3: I was just going to end on why they were invented, you know, with, which was where we started, just to, to really bring that out before we go on to the modern development issues. Um which was the, that they were designed to deal with the reality that private markets weren't providing the finance necessary for state development in the post-war era. In both the north and south as Adrian mentioned at the start and so while we often associate with them with the global south as again as Adrian said the first one created after the World Bank was the Council of Europe Development Bank established in 1956 that was set up to help European countries manage the social impact of refugees and displaced persons but now also has a a, an environmental mandate but so again, you know just emphasizing they um these MDBs they're set up as a credit cooperative. they were originally mostly in their early days lent for specific projects to sovereign states but over time they've that mandate's really grown um, and um, and expanded and that I think is a nice um, segue into Adrian, your concern about how the developmental agenda has shaped where the development banks have gone.
1: Perfect. So, so if we're going to start now roughly mid-1940s, 1944 Bretton Woods Conference, where the World Bank uh, first established, and of course its partner institution, the International Monetary Fund, which is a finance a uh, financial body and not a development body. I'm willing to, to argue that particular point. Um, the interesting thing that emerges, though, because today we'll talk about the idea of development. We'll talk about uh, development economics uh, as a potential discipline, a field to analyse. Interestingly, development ...didn't really exist as we understand it in the 1940s. It didn't exist formally. Um, In fact, when the World Bank or the International Bank for Reconstruction and Development was established in 1944... ...the idea of development was emerging at the same time. So you have this organisation established to do work for reconstruction... ...post-World War II reconstruction and development in the absence of what development actually is so it slowly emerges so an interesting thing that emerges here and i'll go over this uh, little history of the development agenda Uh, the interesting thing is that the multilateral development banks are entwined with this development agenda over time they have reinforced the mainstream understanding of what development is they have been At times, the architects of it. At times, they have been the implementers of it. So we may talk about theoretical ideas and paradigms, but we have to understand that the MDBs played a significant role in translating paradigms and ideas into practice, um, creating frameworks through which action actually happened. But if I may, I will divide my nice little history, and I, I sorry, I do get excited when I get a chance to talk about my development eras, I enjoy doing this. Um, we start in the 1940s uh, with our first era, we move forward in time, and in total we have four definite eras we can point towards, and a fifth emergent era, which perhaps too early to make um, uh, concrete conclusions, but we can make uh, informed speculation about what is coming around today. But let, let, let's let's go back to the 1940s. And between the 1940s and the 1970s, we have a developmental era known as the Keynesian Modernization Welfare Development Agenda, or the Development Era. And at this time, starting in the 1940s, development, and very, very different to the discussions that we'll have today in the 2020s, uh, development was understood as being something led by the state, by the public sector, by government, but the state was to lead it. The state was a key means to organize society and to promote Development. So we, we cannot uh, overemphasize enough during this 1940s to 1970s Keynesian modernization era, the state was the central actor, the state drove economic growth, the state drove economic development, it organized society. And something we highlight in the book that at this time, development was not right or left of of the political spectrum there was at the time a general consensus that more government intervention was needed than previously before and if we put some of this into a bit of perspective into historical perspective we have to remember that 1944 when the international bank for reconstruction development the world bank was first established when the modern development age first began we are barely a decade out of the great depression and we are still in the midst of the second world war this is a period where uh, the private sector is remaining in chaos and there is concerns that if we do not have a stable international system financially economically what disastrous new coming could come next we've already experienced several years of global war what could come next if we don't get some stability so, during this Keynesian modernization, welfare, 1940s to 1970s, development was seen as to be directed, to be guided by the state. And at the time when this was emerging, as I already noted, the idea of development studies, the idea of development economics emerged during this period. And I'd suggest that we, the best way to think about this is that it was quite a revolutionary idea. Uh, you your know, ideas of... Not quite development had existed before, but the way they existed before the 1940s was very much in line with how does an empire develop and a colony in order for the empire to extract resources from that colony more effectively. So development was very, very different to the way that we would understand it today prior to the 1940s. When the 1940s, Second World War, new ideas start to emerge and there was a good deal of positivity. What could actually come next? What could we create out of this uh, really disastrous period for humankind so that is this first 1940s to 1970s period a period of relative stability for development understandings uh, and interestingly if we turn back to the multilateral development banks of which we now identify 32 22 multilateral development banks emerge during this first 1940s to 1970s period so the bulk of them emerge at this time so as the development agenda changes over time, what the mdbs do also change because they were established during one era of understanding and over the decades they have changed their approach uh, which is a, which is an idea we will return to as uh, soon later on we already have that scheduled in for a later discussion uh, but 1940s to 1970s we get to the 1970s and things start to unravel for this first development agenda there are oil shocks 1973 uh, 1979 and they culminate in a 1982 debt crisis things start to unravel, uh, counter ideas start to emerge, and we end up arriving circa 1980. uh, And the high point, the high tide period of neoliberalism comes into the fray. Uh, And we see emerging from 1980, more or less to 1997, the Washington consensus period, a very, very, very uh, famous slash infamous, depending upon uh, your leaning politically at this time, a famous infamous period of uh, cataclysmic change uh, in development discourse, a great turn away from the idea that the state was to be the key means to organize society and promote development. And instead what we see emerging, is the neoliberal era under which with the promotion that there was a moral and economic priority of individuals and markets over society and over the state. So whereas before we would have state-led development, state-led programs during the 1940s to 1970s, instead we see come prominently emerging policy prescriptions for privatization, deregulation, trade and financial liberalization, the unfettering of the market, so the market can be uh, deregulated, open uh, and able to access globally without constraints by the state. And the reason why this era of 1980 to 1997 was regarded or known as the Washington Consensus was because it was a a formal, informal agreement, in, in words, between the US Treasury, the World Bank and the international monetary fund that this is the way that economies should be operating and therefore this is the way the global south should be developing uh, not focusing upon building up the public sector not focusing upon building up the state and in the state direct development but instead allowing the free market to take the charge and i i would say that um Perhaps I'm being quite gentle in in distinguishing between the Keynesian era and the neoliberal Washington consensus era, but the easiest way to divide the two is that relative prioritization of the state for the Keynesian era and the free market for the Washington consensus era. Now, to be far more critical, and the reason why this Washington consensus era only lasted for roughly 17 years, it was quite brutal. Uh, in terms of the policy descriptions being advanced to the global south, uh, neoliberal austerity measures, uh, the cutting back of social welfare programs, social interventions, um, the uh, if I may be colourful in language, the gutting of the public sector globally to allow the market to take over, to, you know, to replace government service delivery with private sector service delivery. This was a trend happening uh, globally. You know, you know, uh, Reagan's US, uh, Thatcher's UK. This is happening around the world. Um, but this was particularly impactful on the global south, uh, which was heavily reliant upon say, um, social safety nets up to that point, And this led to the bottoming out, uh, particularly for those who were at the most risk of uh, increased poverty impacts, of inequality impacts. Uh, It was quite disastrous uh, in in a way for for a good portion of the the least advantaged uh, communities globally around the world.
3: I'd I'd throw in there, Adrian, that it's often called the lost decade for developing countries and that the development banks are really central here because... They were the ones often imposing these neoliberal prescriptions as conditionalities on loans, which is why it's really relevant to the development yes. banks.
1: So, 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 um, um, as I said before, the, the, the multilateral banks cannot be separated from this mainstream development paradigm, or the paradigms uh, that emerge, they are instrumental in creating and recreating the system. Um, and as Susan said, um, so we get to the 1980s, brand new lending instruments emerge, uh, structural adjustment sectoral adjustment programs emerge, which provide uh, massive financial infusions to countries, but on the policy proviso that X, Y, and Z policy prescriptions are implemented. Uh, and John Williamson's famous uh, coining of the Washington Consensus identifies uh, 10 core policy prescriptions, but all surrounding the ideas of uh, privatization and uh, deregulation and trade and financial and eventually capital market liberalization. And interestingly, there are studies that have been done that a capital market liberalization in East Asia was one of the uh prime factors leading to the 1997 asian financial crisis uh, given that capital was far uh, far more unfettered able to move far more easily in and out particularly in crisis situations uh, led to a, uh, a cascade effect by the time we get to the uh, mid to late 1990s which is interesting because prior to that point east asia was held up as the epitome of development, uh, both in terms of state-led development and market-led development, Uh, an interesting uh, segue there. The the final point that I'll note, though, for the Washington Consensus, Uh, whereas during the Keynesian modernization era, the 40s to the 70s, we see 22 multilateral development banks emerge, we only see five multilateral development banks emerge between the 1980s and 1990s, uh, one of which is non-functional, uh, the Great Lakes Bank, which we can talk about uh, later. Non-functional. Uh, so today we only have no, four development back, banks. No, it's back it's functional
3: to- again, Adrian
1: it's back functional again but we have no new data to really know what it's doing at the moment yes um so so i it's it's for me it's um schrodinger's cat it both is and isn't there until i have concrete data and exactly what it's doing
3: exactly um, yes <laughs> uh,
1: but there are only five mdbs emerging during this time uh which i would say in a way also reflects the neoliberal thinking of the time uh, These multilateral development banks are state-led, government-led organizations. They are public sector, international organizations. And there may be a connection there between trying to rely on more public finances during the height of market-led development. So that that could play a role here, Uh, an interesting point to think about. But... We get to 97 uh, as our history continues. We have the 1997, 98 and on to 1999 and for some countries into the early 2000s, the Asian financial crisis emerges, uh, which uh, 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 does uh, catastrophic impacts uh, East Asia primarily, but then it spirals out Southeast Asia, South Asia, impacts uh, globally, but it's called the 97 Asian financial crisis. And in the context of this there were strong, concerted voices saying that neoliberal austerity, the ideas of unfettered privatization, deregulation, trade and financial liberalization, maybe, may, maybe is doing a lot of heavy lifting right now, maybe creating problems that are worse than the opportunities that it's creating. Like I said, the, the maybe might be doing a lot of heavy lifting there. And what we see emerge at this time in the development agenda, not the Washington Consensus, but the post-Washington Consensus – which I will say, uh, and I'm supported by a number of voices, only lasted from really 97 to 2008. So it's, it's a short window now that we can reflect from 2023 beyond, or to 2023 uh, behind. Uh, but during that short period, uh, out of the Asian financial crisis, we see calls that market-led development can be useful, but it needs to have a human face. It needs to take a, you know, recognize the negative impacts that can have when you undermine social safety nets uh, for entire countries. So what we see under this new period, this 97 to 2008 period of the post-Washington consensus, we'll call it a neoliberalism revised, if you will. It still calls strong calls for privatization and trade liberalization, but new calls for uh, poverty alleviation programs in the context of market-led development, for social welfare programs, an attempt to file down the sharp edges of neoliberal austerity to make it palatable. Because if you look at the broader political context of what's going on, huge social movements, uh, non-governmental organizations, uh, social and community grassroots movements throughout the late 80s, throughout the 1990s, pushing back. Against the harshness of neoliberal austerity. And um, now, Susan, check me on my years for it Was it 98 or 99? The uh, WTO. Um, the really, really big, huge... in Seattle,
3: 1999. Seattle, 99.
1: Um, oh yeah, numerous moments um, uh, during this period, but that one, the Battle for Seattle, is, is quite a, a lightning rod to look at of just how much pushback there is on ideas which often were you know, relegated uh, to governmental levels. But now we have a huge, huge global movement to try to push back, to, to, to try to, you know, as I say, file down the sharp edges. And we have this period where there's a greater interest in social welfare, um, a greater interest in poverty alleviation, while at the same time still promoting trade and financial uh, liberalisation and privatisation. And I would note, for the sake of the MDBs, they join up, they lock up with this this movement. Uh, You have presidents of the World Bank saying the Washington census no longer exists anymore. There is a breakdown. Uh, The consensus no longer exists. We're no longer on the same page with different organizations. We need to rethink the way we're doing things. Uh, And I will note for the sake of our system of MDBs emerging, we only have two new MDBs uh, during this 97 to 2008 period, Um, but they come together with this broader system to start approaching development in this new post-WASH consensus format. But of course, we're now up to 2008, and we have a once again another cataclysmic <laughs> event take place: the 2008 global financial crisis. Um, if, if we regard the Asian financial crisis as a warm-up for what's coming, the global financial crisis continuation of that trend. And it led to, in the in, in development context, a profound rethink in the way that development, you know, in quotation marks, should be progressing. And we see emerging at this time, uh, not written down, this is not defined by the MDBs themselves, it's emerging from academic literature, but we have the emergence of an idea uh, coined by Murray and, Murray and Overton, uh, known as retro-liberalism. Now, after the global financial crisis, the retro-liberal global aid regime departs from the post-Washington consensus and towards an increasingly financialized, privatized, profit-oriented model. Now, and I'll, 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 I'll say what the real distinguishing feature is of this new era merging after 2008. This new era sees a return to economic growth as a principal development outcome, economic growth above all else, there is a revised role for the state not like the post-Washington consensus where the state was revised to bring back poverty alleviation and social welfare programs the revised role for the state now was to sponsor and facilitate the private sector The state was to act as the guarantor for the private sector. Now, this is a distinguishing trait different from the Washington consensus of the 1980s and 1990s, whereby the state just had to uh, pull back entirely and let the free market take over. What we have in the retro-liberal 2008, 2010s, we see the state acting as a sponsor and a facilitator for the private sector, an active partner. And that's what the private sector becomes. It's a reframing of the private sector as an active development partner and in the context of all this a central focus on profitable infrastructural investment. These were the defining traits of this uh, retro-liberal era which which
3: is great business for the multilateral development banks because infrastructure is part of their core DNA so this was a great opening for them.
1: Yes. And what we see emerging from the multilateral development banks, and I will note we have three new entrants into the MDB arena at this time, Uh, the BRICS-led, or uh, Brazil, Russia, India, China, South Africa-led new development bank. It's, it's, It's a smaller MDB, but it's still in operation. Uh, we see most recently emerging uh, Mice, and I do like that acronym. The Maghreb Bank for Investment and Foreign Trade, but the acronym is BMICE. Uh, unless, I'm, unless it needs to be said differently, I, I, do, I do like the acronym. Uh, and then, of course, we have the Asian Infrastructure Investment Bank, which is very big business today. This is a China-led Asian Infrastructure Investment Bank, uh, an incredibly large country membership. I don't have the exact numbers offhand, uh, Susan, if you do. I think it's about
3: uh, 67 last time I looked. So so, uh,
1: so the World Bank has 180-plus uh, countries as members. Uh, some of these development banks we look at have five members but this Asian infrastructure investment bank, it is, it, it is definitely becoming a, a big player in the multilateral development bank scene. But in the midst of all this, uh, new MDBs emerging, retro-liberalism, we see a new agenda emerging amongst uh, um, development paradigms. Uh, emerging specifically from the MDBs and cascading out the idea of the billions to trillions uh, uh, agenda. Uh, The idea that um, the multilateral development banks and uh, development activities can act as a catalyst, can act as a co-financier, can act as a a mechanism to bring in uh, private sector investment into development projects, which very much reflects this retro-liberal idea whereby the public sector is a sponsor and a facilitator for the private sector to lead developments This this a new agenda starts to emerge. Now, this retro liberal age, which roughly 2008 onwards begins, is it still in operation today? Um, yes and no, um, uh, I'm willing to put forward and Susan, you please put forward your interpretation as well. Um, COVID-19 has created a, a difficult different situation. Uh, it's hard for me, at least as an academic to neatly pinpoint what is going on in the development agenda, you know, 2020, 2021, 2022 and today. What is really going on now? I mean, we could say retroliberalism is continuing into the early twenty twenties, but given that we haven't fully come out of COVID yet, this is a a period of uncertainty. It's a period of, and I do like this term, Susan. You you provided earlier today the idea of polycrisis. I would say at the moment we cannot clearly identify what is going on with the development agenda. We still need a few years to work out what has actually emerged and where is it going? But we are at, I would contend a bit of a a turning point and things could go in different directions depending upon how things build back uh, after the impact of COVID-19. So that is my, uh, let's say 70 year history of (laughs) development ideas very, very quickly or the mainstream development ideas very, very quickly. Uh, Susan, did you wanna add anything uh, to that?
3: Uh, no, I just agree that we're in a bit of an I think interregnum regarding development ideas. The um, you know the neoliberal retro liberal agenda has really also failed to produce adequate levels of development in many parts of the world. We're facing for, uh, climate crises, and um, but there are very few. You know, there's no new consensus emerging, and a lot of the ideas coming out at the moment, even from the more progressive side of town, Mia Motley, the president of or prime minister of Barbados, and her Bridgetown agenda for the reform of the multilateral development banks is really just still proposing more lending from the banks. And that's, you know, that's interesting but it doesn't take us beyond the existing paradigms.
0: This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust, or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system.
2: Awesome. Thank you both for that. Um, First, when you learn something, you should correct your mistakes. So in my case, to everyone who's ever heard me complaining about neoliberalism, apparently I was supposed to be complaining about (laughs) retro-liberalism. So you can just take a little line and edit what I've said. I apologize. Um, (laughs) Second, I I would like to ask a question to both of you about this history. When we started with this sort of like Keynesian idea of modernism and sort of like all of the like modernist status projects that went with it, um, the intellectual hegemony that you describe in the book and the intellectual tradition really borrows from Keynesianism. But a lot of modernism To me, I mean, this starts in 1944, which is like the height of high Stalinism, sort of has at least some intellectual origins and socialist ideas of planning, however successful or disastrous they may have been. Right. There is and sort of throughout this period into the 1970s and into the 1980s, there are sort of meaningful states that that sort of actively are practicing socialism. And I'm just interested to know sort of like what types of other models were they were they offering? Um, And yeah, so i'm just I'm just curious sort of like where where that sort of tradition, what we in America call the second world, sort of like fits into this story. Uh,
3: the, the socialist planning and the model of the um Soviet Union was definitely an inspiration for greater organisation and planning in the West and um, part of the reason for increased economic cooperation. Um, concerns about the seeming successes of Soviet central planning did drive a lot of the developments that we. That was another key driver of the factors that we're talking about, and it's interesting that it goes off the agenda into the 1980s with the rise of neoliberalism, but the part of the retro-liberal agenda was driven too by the rise of China, and China's never totally abandoned the idea of central planning and state planning. Um, and uh, as states like Vietnam also never uh, have never totally abandoned that and in fact the development banks really um, didn't totally drop the idea of planning either they always work off you know five to ten year plans with the local governments so there is that theme running through this history as well. Um, that actually works, you know, in in that early period, very well in cooperation with it, comes into tension into the neoliberal era. But, you know, with the success of, of China, um, state planning again becomes uh, not so much a, you know, not as much of a dirty word. And, you know, another part of that retro liberal agenda was that, you know, we have to give a bit more space for states. And there's been various elements of that a Chinese version, the Latin American new structural economics focus, or oh, I forget uh, um, the precise what they call it, but, you know, you see this bit of re emergence of. The idea that well, maybe we we threw that idea out a bit much with, you know, in the 80s. So, yeah, good point.
1: And I would say, um, going back to that, um, all the development eras put forward, they very much are the mainstream ones that I put forward and what the MDBs uh, aligned with so if you go back to the 50s and 60s you have the uh, you know, the development structuralist movement emerging at that time uh very very popular emerging out of um you know if, if, we, if we say first world second world third world in the context of uh cold war political alignment there was a lot of interest in structuralist ideas emerging in the third world uh as a political movement uh, and as susan said when we get to the late 1990s into the 2000s we have uh, neo-structuralist ideas emerging now these are not fully or visibly taken on board and 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 endorsed by the mdbs but they remain an important part of the development discussion and beyond structuralism neostructuralism and the mainstream approaches there are within academic scholarship uh, far more critical Uh, approaches, um, you know, gender-based analysis, feminist analysis um, of development, which never really translate uh, neatly for a variety of reasons we could spend another three hours talking about, but they never really translate into practice in the MDBs. Um, So there is actually, uh, for the listeners out there, there's actually a really rich history of development ideas that exist beyond the quote-unquote mainstream that give a lot of nuance and understanding to what has actually taken place over the last 70 years. Awesome.
2: And I have one last very small personal question on this sort of like, because you talked about in the 60s and 70s, there is this, or 50s and 60s, there is this intellectual buy-in from at least some major intellectuals and sort of political projects in the global South, the people who are borrowing from this. I have always wondered... And you can never really get a very good answer to this question, but in the 1980s at this neoliberal turn, was this primarily an intellectual movement that belonged to the Mont Peleron Society and a few sort of like European and North Americans flying to Hong Kong? Um, Or was this this a movement that had that had buy-in sort of or that like if i had flown to kinshasa in 1978 could i have found any neoliberals in the business economics department like was this something that that existed outside of of the united states and outside of sort of the global north or these center-right circles of the global north
3: definitely Uh, i would say
1: full yeah oh susan please go ahead
3: I would say um, they they did exist, partly because a lot of the early economists, and you remember back in the 50s and 60s and even going into the 70s and 80s, there were relatively few people with PhDs in in, in a lot of developing countries. Now, that's changed radically since then, and a lot of those PhDs came from training in the global north and particularly in the US and the UK, and so um, people were trained in the show cargo school and went back to places like chile and the congo and so what we see i'm an i'm a neo Gramscian. i see that project as you get um, different in different countries and different places the um the growth of neoliberalism as a combination of coercion and consent so um, you have academics and policymakers who have been trained uh, in various ways and accept and and um, and support neoliberal ideas, but also development banks and other um, debt-based bodies coming in. The IMF, in particular, coming in and imposing the ideas. In the Chilean case, uh, the bit more radical imposition through a military coup backed by the US. So you know, it's quite different in quite different spaces. Adrian,
1: no, I'm. Because I like thinking critically about you know, the study of economics. And you know, during the 1960s, if you were uh, an undergrad in economics, your textbook would basically be a uh, Keynesian 101 uh, textbook introduction to economics. By the time you get to 1980s, things radically change. Uh, I'll say notably in the US uh, and in Western Europe, whereby you see, uh, and I, I don't mean to be conspiratorial in any sort of way saying this, but you do see the systematic uh, disbanding of Keynesian ideals uh, in Uh, The teaching of economics during the early 1980s in favour of neoliberal models. And the interesting way to put this into context is that um, whereas the early, like the 50s, 60s, you will not see that many PhDs in the global south, those individuals in the global south who did get PhDs by and large, would be from more of the elite within the Global South. They would come to the Global North for education at the elite universities of the world who were teaching neoliberal economics and were no longer teaching Keynesianism so that when they returned uh, to their home countries to become uh, 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 politicians, ministers, public servants, whatever they may become when they return um, to their home countries, they are imbued with this new common sense about neoliberal economics, this is the way an economy should run, uh, and that has a huge impact. There's as a as a marvelous literature uh, surrounding um, that, you know, that 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 movement of ideas uh, globally hmm. and during it that does period.
3: Meet with their class interests as well. These are the elites, yes. and the neoliberal agenda meets with their class interests. So it it helps it become common sense, as Adrian said.
1: Because yeah. one thing that neoliberalism did, and, uh, and this I'll say infamously, but very, very effectively, uh, neoliberalism, if it is very much about the unfettering of private capital, it is clearly on the side of capital. And when you see deregulation, when you see privatization, when you see uh, the removal of um, uh, labor market restrictions, uh, what you see there is protections leaving labor, leaving the working class, and capital – having a far more influential position as a result. Um, So you see during the 90s and 1990s globally, uh, the deterioration of uh, working class influence, the deterioration of unions, which is all part of this neoliberal uh, uh, dismantling of uh, state-led ideas, state-led interventions in the economy.
2: Awesome. So, thank you. Very much for that history lesson. I think it puts us, gives our audience a very good understanding of what this book contains, sort of what the most interesting ideas are. And so now I'm going to ask both or one of you, whoever has been elected between you, to answer this question, um, to answer the headline question of the book: debt or development, both, neither, or something in between, sort of just sort of like it is in the subtitle, right? Like it's the core question that we set out to, to know the answer to is, is this a system simply of indebtedness or is it about development or what, what something in between just take it away, sort of take the question head on.
3: Thanks Sydney. Dichotomy is always hide a bit of truth, don't they? And they make good titles, but the truth is always somewhere in between. Um, though, on the debt side, as the late great David Graeber reminds us, debts, um, money lodge money debts logic, um, turns moral questions about debt and credit into matters of impersonal arithmetic. And 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 then when they become that, the um, uh, there you know the enforcement of that is no longer a moral question, but one of merely you know a, a requirement. And then. The things you need to do as a result, you know, in the old times, you might have to sell your child or your husband. In modern days, you'll cut your health care system so that people no longer have access to decent health care and the health care they need and, and may pass away as a result. So there's something fundamental about the debt basis of uh, multilateral development banks that we really can't forget for my uh, my take on this. Debt remains capitalism's tribute mechanism. And so long as there's no formal mechanism for managing default by states and that... Um, that's the case still today, debt collection continues to have um, very a, a degree of violence associated with it that is often indirect but, you know, that 1980s debt crisis saw life expectancy in developing countries' decline. Uh, so there's a violence associated with that. And um, so that's one side of it. But turning to the, the development side, and, and as Adrian outlined really well, what we mean by development, first of all, is really contested. So there's the first problem in trying to come to some neat summary about development potential. Um, I guess at the end of the day, my conclusion is that the MDBs have always promoted a fairly emaciated vision of development as growth, economic growth plus a minimalist view of poverty reduction. And really up until very recently for the World Bank, that meant getting people above the international poverty line of $2.15 a day and not much more. And that poverty line, that doesn't give you enough calories to reach a reasonable life expectancy. That's a, you know, that's a poverty line. So once you're above $2.15 a day in World Bank stories, you're suddenly middle class it's just bizarre terminology that they've, you know, adopted. Um, so um, the the vision of development that they've promoted has always been pro- problematic. But in the last three chapters of the book, we do go through and try and evaluate in more systematic terms their contributions in the areas of infrastructure, climate change and human development. So we could give you a brief summaries of those. A few thoughts I can start with. Um, infrastructure and Adrian will do climate change. Um, Infrastructure is really interesting. It's the um, written into the DNA of multilateral development banks. It's just it's project based lending of um, of a, a big picture things that are seen to drive economic growth. You can calculate rates of return on them, and they they're then seen to drive further private sector economic growth. And that's really what the MDBs were set up to do. So it was a key focus during their early years, though. Um, After the rise of neoliberalism, their investment levels in infrastructure actually declined a bit because of that whole hostility to state investment. Um, And then it comes back with a bang in the 1990s with the retro-liberal agenda and the Chinese focus on investment. And it's still the biggest sector of investment. Uh, Engen Prison did a study in 2018 that said most MDBs are spending over 50% of their disbursements on infrastructure and energy and transportation remain the two biggest ones of the infrastructure sector. At one level, I think it's actually where MDB lending makes most sense. It's vital for development and countries in the global south and even in the north at times often can't access to finance to pay for it. Um, but and and it is vital investment for economic growth and for development. But then the the rate of returns that they calculate for investments often aren't what is claimed by MDBs, and countries still often have to earn hard currency to pay for these debts. So an infrastructure investment in a road or a power plant. The returns you earn on that are in local cu- uh, currencies but the loans the MDBs make are mostly in hard currencies so they have to earn US dollars or some other currency to pay back these loans and um, since the... and. Since the Washington Consensus, many of these projects have been done as public-private partnerships that privatise profits and socialise losses when the projects don't live up to their expectations. And infrastructure is interesting. It's often tricky, big, complex projects that almost always run over cost, Um, uh, overruns of 50% in infrastructure projects are really the norm. And 100% is not uncommon. And that's not just in the global south, right? We all, I'm sure every listener in their home country in the south or north knows of some big infrastructure project or that's gone well over cost. So... Um, And in that process, part of the logic here is you get big vested interests in driving these big infrastructure projects. They're great for politicians seeking re-election and then they're great for the firms that tender for them. The firms that tender for them often put out tenders that are under cost knowingly, knowing once they won the contract it's really hard for the state to cancel that contract and for somebody else to take it over because the project's just too big and complex so they can start hiking up their costs. So um, it makes them easy to commit and hard to deliver and often quite expensive. And some of the ideas about what infrastructure is vital, this big infrastructure agenda of the last few years, we've got all this, you know, big gap in infrastructure some of these just leave countries with white elephants with projects that are too big and too expensive, that are not climate-friendly and not pro-poor. Um, and big infrastructure projects often have big social costs and that's been a really big challenge for multilateral development banks. Some of the biggest social movements against the banks have, been, um, have developed as a result of their infrastructure um, projects the, uh, the movement against the highways in the Amazon that led to large-scale deforestation. Um, one of the biggest social movements in the world was created in India uh, to oppose the funding of the Namata River, uh, again, a World Bank project. So, um, you know, again, the, the, no simple p- picture about the development bank's contribution to development. And in the age of climate change, um, these infrastructure projects are more and more questionable, which is a nice point to hand over to Adrian and his assessment of the banks on climate change.
1: Thank you. And so one thing we do find, this, this merge of the book throughout all of it, um, as organisations, we tend to regard these multilateral development banks as more similar than not. You know, in terms of structure, in terms of purpose, they're more similar than not, but, while they do operate as a complex system, as, as we argue in the book, there are differences between them. There's, there's nuance to understand these different organizations. And turning across to climate change, uh, it is interesting to note, um, and I'll, I'll, pose a, I'll, pose a, I'll pose a rhetorical question just for a moment before I answer myself. Um, so To the listeners now, when do you think did the MDBs first engage with climate change? We, we talk about climate change all the time now. Uh, ever since Paris in 2015, it's, it's been a huge global leading issue we all talk about. So it seems like we cannot escape discussion about climate change today. Uh, but interestingly, the World, uh, the, the World Bank and the MDBs only first started engaging with climate change properly in 2008. So 2000 onwards, we really only had these development banks engage with climate change for about 15 years. And what we have seen over that time is that different MDBs have engaged uh, in different ways. Some have invested heavily. Uh, Some remain committed to financing uh, petroleum uh, projects and uh, new gas exploration projects. So large differences uh, between them. But those that do engage with climate change look at climate adaptation, climate mitigation, and climate resilience. But The main thing, I'll I'll, I'll be brief about this, the main thing that the MDBs as a system have done in responding to climate change has been to understand climate change as a problem that can be resolved technologically. It is about converting a bus from uh, petroleum power to electric power. It's about having new um, uh, infrastructure networks that are green-friendly. It's about making sure sanitation goes where it needs to go to ensure fresh water arrives where it needs to arrive but climate change is understood primarily as a technological intervention now why would this large collection of organizations opt for that particular approach to climate change and the easy answer is technological interventions are easy to finance as projects and the multilateral development banks are ultimately banks and they ultimately focus on project investments and it's far easier to invest in uh, a new fleet of buses um, for an urban community in a particular country as opposed to looking at more systemic interventions required to address climate change and that is just the nature of uh, project-based investments turn it back to Susan.
3: One of the big controversies at the moment also is that they're, you know, funding under green finance, con- converting uh, coal-fired power stations to gas-fired power stations with the climate movement saying that, you know, we really just need to be jumping straight into renewables and Uh, For where we've got public financing rather than wasting it on gas financing. Um, So there's a big debate in the climate movement too, where they've been really focusing on what the banks are doing in this area. But like everywhere, there's just a lack of climate finance as well.
1: Um, If I may interrupt humorously just for 15 seconds, Um, I have a little puppy next to me who's getting very, very angry at me. I have to move to a different room, so I'll be back in 30 seconds if that's okay.
3: That's fine. I could start on um, on the social sector, and just say, look, it's it's hard to summarize. The bank, you know, the, the World Bank, the other development banks, they mostly, apart from some of the exceptional um, specialized banks like the Council of Europe Development Bank that I met, mentioned earlier, didn't get too involved in social sectors. Even things like health. Um, They weren't interested in it in their early years. When the World Bank first got involved in health, um, they were really interested in controlling population, population projects. Um, they funded some controversial things in that uh, in that area too, including you know mass um, sterilization programs and things like that. And then they start getting interested in health in the 80s, with that uh, you know um, a little bit in the 80s, and then a bit more into the post-Washington Consensus era with the adjustment with the human face. But the start of in the 80s is then um, turning health into a private issue. So health privatization, focusing on health as a private issue. And they've driven health privatization in a number of developing countries, which has, you know, often been a spectacular failure. The best public the best health systems around the world in developing countries which can be funded with, you know, 5 to 7% of GDP are predominantly public systems and comprehensive public systems, whereas the banks provided this system where they'll say – The state's allowed to provide some basic health care and then um, the private sector has to look after everything else. And what that does is just leave the poor in the hands of an emaciated state system and leave the market and those who can pay to have a better health system. Uh, education has been another interesting area you know again uh, the bank did get in involved in it earlier and then in the 80s took up the privatization agenda but by certainly by the late 1990s into the 2000s it had also acknowledged that privatization of education and particularly primary and even secondary education wasn't such a great thing nor were user fees which were all things they'd been promoting so they pull away from those agendas Um, and um, you know, and as I mentioned earlier, I think one of the other key points in this human uh, human development area was their vision of poverty that that you know this international poverty line is their goal at $1.25 and now two dollars fifteen a day um, that's your target for getting people above poverty. Adrian was going to talk a bit about gender, but he's not back, at, know, back, back yet.
1: I, oh, back. I, was, I was just enjoying your discussion about human development, but I'm happy to discuss gender. That'd be wonderful. There we go.
3: Let me hand over to you because <laughs> I thought we'd just take, keep it a quick discussion at this point.
1: Yep, no problems at all. Um, so the uh, not all, um, but uh, let's say about a dozen or so MDBs out of the 32 have engaged with what we could broadly label gender, Uh, since the late 1970s. Now, things really started in terms of concerted effort during the 1980s and into the 1990s, uh, with most activity focusing on gender-focused projects, uh, projects um, that uh, target women and girls emerging in the 2000s and 2010s. And over this uh, period since the 1980s, we see different uh, approaches uh, to gender interventions emerge. Uh, The first approach, called uh, Women in Development, or WID, uh, which academically, it emerges in one way. For the MDBs, it emerges actually quite differently. The MDBs co-opt some of these terms, but then approach it their own organizational ways. Uh, But Women in Development is about integrating women into development, uh, with the idea being that prior to this time in the 1980s, women's work, quote unquote, was excluded from development because it wasn't related to capital raising activities. Uh, It was household work, it was um, supporting family work, which since it didn't contribute to GDP or economic growth, it was excluded from our understandings of development. But that's where the, the, the bank started. Uh, when we get around to, to the time of the post-Washington consensus, uh, especially after 1995 and the Bayesian Declaration and Platform for Action, which was a huge global moment uh, for gender awareness and gender engagement, we see a new approach called gender and development emerge, or I should say co-opted and integrated into MDB activities. And we see a turn here to try to understand the relations between men and women understanding that gender is not just about women, it's about the relations between men and women. And we see a greater focus on uh, poverty alleviating activities, about uh, gender empowerment, gender equality emerging in the MDB. So, To a limited extent, I, I'm not trying to create this a, as a, a wonderful halcyon days of, of gender engagement, but a broader attempt to understand gender more broadly. But then we get to the 2010s and the 2020s more recent period and we see across the mdbs a very very distinct change in the way that gender is approached as a development issue we see first and foremost the idea of gender start to disappear we see women and girls come to the forefront so gender dynamics start to disappear And instead of focusing on poverty alleviation and uh, gender equality and gender empowerment, we see a concerted focus on how do we best make women and girls into private sector entrepreneurs? How do we increase their access? To assets and their control over assets. How do we build women's employment opportunities? That becomes the baseline throughout all of the 2010s into the 2020s as a new way of understanding women's focus interventions. And I have Two papers that I've, I've 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 produced, and I'm hoping they get published soon. But we'll see what happens with them. Um, but they, but I I coined this era because I, I do like the idea of retro liberalism, and I, I regard this new era as a retro liberal wid era, a focus solely upon women and girls, but in a retro liberal way that it's all about creating better private sector actors of women and girls, as opposed to actually trying to address poverty and inequalities. Uh, Between men and women, boys and girls in the global south. And and that really is indicative of a lot of the larger development changes that have taken place uh, since the 2008 global financial crisis. Yeah.
2: Awesome. Um, Yeah. That last part reflects so many conversations I've had in my life. Um, Anyways, we are hitting that one hour 10 mark. I do not want to take up too much more of your time. So I will toss each and every, or I will toss both of you, the same last two questions, which you can answer briefly if you would, which is what are you working on now? And would you please provide one reading recommendation for our listeners of something you're reading or something you would recommend they read?
3: I couldn't start. Adrian and I are working on a paper on the creation of international organizations and looking at their multilateral development banks as a case study. Um, I'm also doing more work on the development uh, finance response of the development banks, their uh, response to COVID and health privatisation, and looking at the Australia's role of development finance and our overall engagement with the third world um, is a big new project I'm just about to start. And in terms of my, one of my favourite reading things, not really related to development banks, but I'm quite interested in sort of these general broad picture works that are synthesising new historical, archaeological, biological, climate knowledge about um, about human evolution and inequality. And uh, my big recommendation would be James C. Scott's Against the Grain. Wonderful book. Adrian?
2: It is, in fact, a truly wonderful book. Adrian, take us home.
1: Um, so what I'm working on right now um... I have various papers related to the multilateral development banks in the works. Uh, I have a couple of papers on gender, as I just noted, which I'm hoping to get published soon. I'm working with a, a colleague uh, at my host, at my home university on um, the responses of the MDBs to illicit activity to corruption, fraud uh, in their operations, which is quite an interesting thing to focus on. But longer term into the future, I am doubling down on climate change, environmental engagement, conservation, uh, conservation biodiversity, environmental management. And I see myself uh, you know, following on from Susan and, and, and my book together. My next book, my next big solo book project would be a, a good historical account of development activity across the spectrum of environmental interventions, so climate change here, environmental management there, conservation and biodiversity there. I'm very much interested because there's a lot going on in environmental space, and I would like to provide some parameters to understand the big picture of that. Now, what are you eating? <laughs> what are you reading? Um, I can't give you a specific at the moment, but I'm going to give you a, a more of a general response. And I've realized specifics maybe after, work. I'll give a general idea. So I am in a school of business, uh, but I, uh, in terms of it being a researcher, I come from international relations, international political economy, and I won't give an advice for a particular singular reading. But what I have found being in a school of business is that there is a robust literature, emerging out of management studies, uh, business analysis, organizational analysis, which my original discipline of international relations, international political economy, did not engage with as much. And so rather than recommending one particular work, I I I would recommend particularly to to, uh, researchers, look beyond your discipline to answers that have questions that have already been answered by other disciplines and see what you can embrace in cross-disciplinary approaches. And I'm finding a wealth of fascinating fascinating theoretical framings and approaches, especially emerging from management and organizational analysis. So that would be my response to what are you currently reading?
2: Awesome. And that is indeed good advice. The book is The Architecture of Multilateral Development Banks, A System of Debt or Development. Um, I'm talking to Adrian. Can you say your last name? I'm sorry. I have not. L- held Adrian Bowers,
1: hour of course. Not a problem <laughs> yeah, at all. And
2: Susan Engel, um, who published this book two years ago. It's from Routledge. You can get it on their website. I'll drop the link in the description. Um, I encourage everyone to check it out. I did. It's a lovely book. It will teach you a ton about how the world actually works. Um, anyways, yeah. Thank you, everyone.
3: Thank you, Sydney.